in, in January uh, of early January of this year, um, a signal came out. One America uh, CEO Scott Davison was on a Chamber of Commerce conference call, just relaying what he was seeing. And he, I don't think he knew what he was saying, but what he said was this: He had seen in the second half of 2021 a 40% rise in deaths in his in his cohort. And he said, and to put the meat on the bones there, 10% is a three standard deviation event, which for those of us in math land is a big deal. 40% is a once in a 200 year flood. And he said it was non-COVID related deaths. That was one. And then he said, two, it was happening amongst younger people. And the thing to understand about this data set, these are group life uh, policies. They're policies written for a corporation. You join as a young man or woman, you get a $25,000 to $100,000 benefit as a throwaway thing. You, you know, I, in my career, I always would onboard to a new company, sign healthcare, dental, and, you know, put my wife as the, the beneficiary of something I never expected to collect. Well, guess what? They're collecting. And these, these are, like you said earlier, Dr. Corey, um, you know, the, 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 the data is there now. It's real world. You were hearing it early. And I just want to say one other thing. Dr. Corey and other doctors that saw these signals early, if the, and this is why I think there's proof of fraud. In the old days, in the 70s with the swine flu, there were 25 deaths and they pulled it. Yep. The signals you saw should have been listened to. And the fact that you were called fringe is evidence of fraud, in my opinion. You know, I fully believe that intelligence agencies are involved behind the scenes. They've admitted and it's come out in some publications that they ran psyops to um, make the public more fearful. They bragged about it, and that's come out. Um, the CEO of Pfizer um, let it. He dropped in an interview that uh, he had been discussions with the CIA and the FBI about those who were harming everyone with counter narratives, and they are criminals and should be put in jail. So. The CEO of a pharmaceutical company is in touch with the CIA and the FBI. That's alarming. Um, so there's look, I'm 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 a guy that takes uh, breadcrumbs and connects dots, and that's what I've done my whole career. And um, you know, an ethics professor uh, in my business school said something that stuck with me my whole career, and I've seen it uh, happen throughout the financial industry time and time again. Anyone, you can't rationalize facts to a person whose position is based on emotion because it, it, it disables critical reasoning and thought. So the people that have run, run this scheme, I believe, understand that. And a lot of people, um, and, and the FDA uh, was the crux of this fraud. You had to compromise the FDA, it's a pinch point because many doctors, like Dr. Corey said, they don't dig into clinical trial data and they just trust. It's a, it's a third party trusted institution. So when they say something, a doctor just goes along and says, well, it must be okay. It must be vetted. And that's how this fraud and psychology has been perpetrated. It's been with propaganda, fear, and, um, you know, corrupted institution pinch points. You didn't need to get everybody involved. And once you launch it, like Dr. Corey said, um, people just will follow in lockstep, not knowing that they're part of the scheme. Not knowing that they're part of the scheme. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm creative director of this Alliance of Medical Professionals and, and people who support them. 
The video that you just saw was from a roundtable that happened last February. It was one of the first interactions between Ed Dowd, who has been a major success in observing and analyzing data for corporations and investors on Wall Street. The folks who want to get the facts right, they want to know what's really happening because they're going to put a lot of money on it. Well, a year ago, Ed and our Pierre Corey talked about this strange data, the uncommon numbers of deaths that just shouldn't be happening to this young, healthy population. Now, with almost constant headlines about young athletes and entertainers and others dropping dead, is the message that Ed and Pierre talked about then starting, just starting to get through? Well, they are both here with us tonight. Ed is our special guest, and we think Paul Merrick, our good Dr. Paul Merrick, is going to be joining in. We have two doctors. We have Ed, and they are going to discuss the latest data, the latest medical information, and what these experts think is responsible. You got a hint in that video. You're going to get up to date right soon. Our nurses are already online. They are answering questions that you text into the Q&A, and I'm going to be back after the discussion with more of your questions for the doctors, and it'd be very good doctors and for Ed. So um, it might be very good to get your questions that are relevant to this discussion tonight. Ed does have to leave early. So we'll try to get that in as soon as we can. And right now, let's just bring these guys on. Ed, welcome. And uh, Paul and Pierre, take it away. Great. All right. Are you there, Ed? Yes, thanks for having me on today, guys. Good to be yeah, here. Definitely. So, Ed, you know, we watched that video. That's almost a year ago when we first uh, appeared on a on a podcast together, and uh, we're here again, um, doing what we do, which is trying to uh, tr trying to fix what is a humanitarian catastrophe, and that's what we want to talk to you about. I mean, um, I, I just want to say briefly. Ed, and I talked to you about this before, I am so tired of citing medical studies and data. Um, it, it, it just seems to be a dead end. Uh, every study you cite, there are corrupt and fraudulent or manipulated or really <clears throat> uncensored studies, right? Because the stuff that appears in the journals are very curated. And so you have this these data arguments that are just non-resolvable. But I just want to say, Ed, Lately, when I have to talk about vaccines, I literally, I think I'm like your um, your body double. I literally cite all of your analysis because I find it's the most compelling data is the most inarguable, unassailable data. And I just appreciate the work you've done. I'm really glad you're with us tonight. Thanks for having me on. And, you know, it's, it's interesting watching those comments from a year ago. You know, I don't watch myself in videos and how prophetic was what you and I said. I mean, unbelievable. Unreal. So, Ed, what maybe we could start? Can you? I know you've done this before. You just talk about like a little bit your background. What kind of like how you appeared on the scene and and like what's propelled you? And then and then let's talk about data. I mean, let, let's talk about you know your stuff. I, I think your data is the strongest and the most alarming. All of the stuff with it, the way you've you way you've, you've dissected the disability data and the subgroups who are getting more disabled than the, those that aren't. I, I think that is just incredible stuff. So anyway. Um, I, I really want to hear, you know, the, the big picture, like how you got here and, and what we're doing. 
Yeah, no problem. So look, I spent my whole career on Wall Street and I have a unique Wall Street background. Most people go into different silos and stay there. I was in the fixed income world early in my career at HSBC. It's, it's a, a Hong Kong Shanghai bank. And I was a bond salesman in Chicago and my job was to analyze credit markets, uh, fixed income securities, sell them to my clients, uh, monitor interest rate cycles, economic cycles. And I learned how the guts of the system really operates and, and how you know money flows and capital flows across the globe. I then went back to business school and uh, Indiana University and then went on to Wall Street uh, and worked at uh, uh, Donaldson, Lufkin and Genrette in the late 90s as an electric utility analyst writing research reports for clients that would buy our research. And uh, I was down the hall from the internet gang and uh, I saw the fraud uh, on, that was uh, burgeoning there, basically. I saw what used to be called the, the due diligence process uh, just pillaged. And we were, uh, every investment bank was issuing companies without cash flows and revenues. The metric then was eyeballs. And we know how that part, we know that party ended badly. Um, I left uh, DLJ to go to the, uh, what's called the buy side up in Boston and manage, I became a tech analyst for independence investments. And because of my knowledge of seeing the fraud in action, I said, this, this is going to end badly. It did. I protected my firm the best I could and parlayed that into a job at BlackRock as a large cap growth portfolio manager, where I managed a fund for 10 years. And we grew it from $2 billion to $14 billion through a combination of good returns and uh, you know, pitching business to pension funds with our track record. Saw the great financial crisis coming, steered our, for our fund the best we could through that meaning we lost money, but we, we lost a lot less than everybody else. And, uh, you know, in my, in my career, I just, I see fraud after fraud. And, you know, in the dot-com era, it was, the refrain was, we're in a new paradigm. Uh, in the housing crisis, the refrain was, home prices never go down. All you had to do was Google some history and you found out that was a lie. And then the new refrain in this fraud, which is the biggest fraud of my career that I've ever seen, safe and effective. Yep. And and every 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 fraudulent error has a has a catchphrase, and I think you would agree that safe and effective is a complete and utter lie, and the effective part's been proven beyond a doubt. The safety part is beyond, uh, in my mind, beyond a doubt, and just starting to glean on the rest of the country potentially. I think the dam is breaking slowly, but it's becoming undeniable what's going on. Bodies are accumulating, disabilities are accumulating, and the data is is a disaster. As we see it right now, yeah, you know, you know, one of the, some of the things that you said in that like opening video from a year ago, right? I loved how you touched upon, you know, it's it's very hard to rationalize facts or use facts for someone whose beliefs are built on emotion, and and that safe and effective refrain and all the propaganda, it it really has led to this fever pitch of emotion. That you add a little, a couple of ingredients of widespread fear. Right. And so you have the we have a population into this particular emotional state, which, Ed, they seem to be somewhat resistant to facts. Now, they're helped along by censorship, you know, protection from those facts that we're trying to bring out. But, you know, on that issue. Right. You know, one of the things that we've been battling and, and uh, you know, a colleague of ours, Chris Martinson, has said this for a long time, is, is that this is not a data argument, meaning you're not, it's hard to win this or solve this problem by making data arguments. But at the same time, what are we left with? How else can we change the perception, the truth, but provide data? And 
I, I always, I thought when you came on the scene and you started bringing out that data and we did our work with life insurance, I thought like this data is going to change, you know, just going to change the landscape. And, but it, it still seems, Ed, that many of us who understand the scope and the scale of this catastrophe, it still resides under the rubric of private knowledge and it's not yet common knowledge. How can we get this from private knowledge to common knowledge? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, you know, in my career, I saw this over and over again. People who should have known better on Wall Street about the dot-com fraud and the real estate fraud, they had a belief system, their ego was involved, and they continued to believe it uh, until the evidence was overwhelming and the herd shifted. And my goal with, you know, going on podcasts or writing this book, Cause Unknown, is to change the marginal mind because that's how you you win hearts and minds is one but one body by one body, and um, I you know I I think the good news is I think we're starting to change hearts and minds. It's not going as quickly as you and I would like. Yeah. Um, and you know we you know you and I with Josh Sterling uh, we did a uh, uh, I was in the background because Josh was the insurance executive uh, from Wall Street that helped me initially, and he. And you guys tried to talk to some insurance executives and you had about 25 show up. There was a small working group, but they were fearful and, and, and timid. And a lot of people need social proof, unfortunately. And the reason I've had success in my career is because I don't need social proof. I'm usually the, the crazy guy uh, screaming first and people laugh at me. And then eventually they begrudgingly say I'm right and then may give me credit later. But it's a lonely place to be. And these insurance executives are not Wall Street people. They're slow and uh, they they don't want to derail their careers and they're looking for social proof and social proof usually comes in the form of a regulatory body. But, you know, we don't have those right now because they're all captured. And on Wall Street, if you wait for the regulators to, um, you know, say there's fraud, you've missed your opportunity and the, the stock is already down 90 to 100 percent. And if you're in the business of shorting frauds, you missed you missed the boat. So you have to you know, those on Wall Street that are good at this, we live in the world between perception and reality. Mm. And, you know, perception is safe and effective. Reality is, as we know, otherwise. And that's what I'm trying to do is shift the perception of the herd. And unfortunately, you know, I've talked to many people in our movement, and a lot of people think there's a smoking gun, a smoking gun. We have the smoking gun. We just have to sell it. And that's why I keep harping on, you know, just what I said in my book, which was, that definitively we can prove with the facts and the data that being employed in 21 and 22 was detrimental to your health. And that's not a thing that normally occurs throughout our history of um, disabilities and deaths. Typically speaking, when you're employed, you're, you know, you're showing up to work, you tend to have a health profile that's good, you tend to be younger, and you're in the prime of your earning years. So the fact that excessively young people, uh, at, especially in this group life cohort, because the side of actuaries did a study that proved that this cohort doesn't die like the rest of the normal uh, the U.S. population. They die at a mortality of a third to 40 percent that of the U.S. population in any given year. And now in 2021, uh, the, the report came out in August from the Society of Actuaries that that group 25 through 64 in their in their revenue book collectively as an industry died at 40 percent excess mortality versus 32 percent for the general population. That's never happened before. So it flipped in 2021. 
Yeah, that's, so that's, that, I mean, that that's that to me, that that's kind of the stuff that I've been trying to talk about. The healthiest cohort of our population historically suddenly started to die at increased rates that exceeded the death rates of the other cohorts of the population. And and no. if that's what the data shows, it's like you said, that generates lots of questions. Who's asking the questions and what are the answers, right? You are, we are. So Ed, Ed I have a question, Paul, here. Yeah, so I mean, why aren't your the insurance companies being more proactive? Because clearly the number of payouts must have gone up, skyrocketed the disabled people. So the insurance industry must be taking somewhat of a hit. Why, why haven't they been more vocal as to what's going on? And, you know, are, are the insurance premiums going to go up? I mean, how is this going to play out in, in the insurance industry? I'll give you... I'll give you a real anecdotal example. So one of my whistleblowers is a very senior chief actuary. She's on the senior leadership team. She was one of the only ones on the team that didn't get vaccinated. Um, she uh, has been called a conspiracy theorist internally, and uh, she tried to warn them, but they don't want to listen. And they literally uh, think it's not due to the vaccine. They're, they're under a group hallucination, and they all think that the deaths are going to uh, go, resor re re resort back to normal eventually. They've been wrong for a couple quarters on that. The insurance industry as a whole predicted that excess mortality would be getting better the last two quarters. It didn't. Um, so they're wrong, and they're still in this cognitive dissonance, and it's literally unreal. I mean, she literally is called the conspiracy theorist. Yeah, and Ed, Ed, let me let me um, just for the uh, the the audience. I want to briefly talk about how what what we did with the life insurance industry. So after um, that CEO came out, uh, obviously your colleagues with Josh Sterling, who's you know a, a deep veteran of the insurance life insurance industry, insurance industry. You guys um, got a group together, and I was part of it. So as a collection of doctors, myself and uh, Malone and Cariotti, and I think McCullough was involved. Um, and then we had an audience. He brought an audience of interested life insurance executives or their representatives from numerous large companies with a couple of insurance regulators. And we were given the opportunity to present our data and our insights, not only on the suppression of the toxicity and lethality of the vaccines. And you guys presented data showing that we are literally looking at a societal scourge or really a catastrophe. Um, and we got to answer questions. And so we were working, we were, I think Josh and yourself and ourselves, when we started, we were under the belief that because of the history of societal changes triggered by the life insurance industry or insurance industry, like for instance, the advances in automobile safety, aviation safety, boating safety, fire codes, electrical codes, those were all done because of the mass morbidity mortality around that lack of regulation. And so, so they really have saved lives. Now, you can argue that's in their business interest to do that, but they have been a major societal force historically at improving the safety and protecting the health and lives of our citizens. And so I think Josh and yourself thought this might be another unique time in history where the insurance industry can come forward and 
you know, write this capsized ship or, or, or this, you know, sinking ship. And I'm just going to finish here. We had multiple meetings. Ed, the thing that I remember most about them is how many screens were turned off and how little was said. They were a passive audience. They listened, very few questions, and we had calls to action, right? You guys put them out. You and Josh put out calls to action for these various companies of that this is unique time. We set the opportunity for them to make a difference. And Ed, maybe you can talk about this. Nothing came of that, right? So Paul's question is interesting because I asked that same question that Paul asked. I asked that to Josh Sterling. I said, how can these skyrocketing increases in life insurance claims, which have to be flashing red on their balance sheets, how are they not acting on this? And what Josh told me, and maybe you can speak more specifically, I'm going to, I'm going to mangle his answer, but he basically told me that these large companies are so fragmented and the accounting part and those who make decisions, they're a little fragmented and there's always a delay. And he gave the example of the long-term um, uh, long-term care insurance industry, which was apparently a money loser and you know was, was losing tons of money. That went on for 25 years before someone did about it. So he said, you know, this is not new to the life. They are slow. They are, you know, they are not quick to react, but but I, I'll stop there, Ed. That that work that we did and that audience that we had, which was a unique time, and I really do think that if you had a group of life insurance executives who came out and did a press conference, I think that was our, I hate to use the term, that was our wet dream that would come out of it, that like <laughs> literally, I'm sorry to use the word wet dream, but that's what we were thought. We thought that these life insurance executives might have the courage and conviction to band together and alert society to what was happening. And nothing happened. So do you want to speak more about like why? Talk more about those like that those insurance industries. Why didn't that happen? Well, there's good news and bad news. Uh basically what you said, they're just in cognitive distance. They jabbed their own employees, they jabbed themselves. They couldn't put their heads around the fact that this would even be remotely possible, as I'm guessing, and ego was involved. But I will say this: the good news is Lincoln Financial had a disastrous quarter last quarter. They, uh, they, their stock went down 30% in one day. And if, if you know anything about insurance companies, they don't move around like that. That's a big deal. And Josh has uh, been on uh, in AM Best or Forbes. When he was on some, he, he, he ran a, he was involved in a story where he said that Lincoln Financial may be the uh, Bear Stearns of uh, the financial crisis, meaning the canary in the coal mine. And what happened with Lincoln Financial was this. They have a, a policy that they sold called universal life. It's between whole life and term life. So it's somewhat of an investment, but you're, you're given the option to cancel it. So the idea is you're a guy on Wall Street making $4 million a year. Uh, you're worried that if you die, you, know, you don't have enough money in the bank to, for your family to you know, live as they've been living. So you get this universal life policy and you accumulate some assets, but it's not as expensive as whole life better than term life, but you have the option to cancel, right? Well, what happened to Lincoln Financial? They sold a ton of these policies and they assumed what's called a lapse rate, meaning the number of cancellations. Well, the lapse rate plummeted in the last quarter or the prior four quarters and they had to take a big write-off. The lapse rate is uh, plummeting because people are getting cancers and sick and their morbidity leads mortality. So what's going on in this group is 
something's happening to them. Either they're becoming afraid because they're seeing their cohorts drop dead around them and or they've gotten sick themselves and decide to continue paying the policy. So Lincoln Financial on the call didn't blame the vaccine. They didn't even say it was COVID. They said it was non-COVID related issues, whatever that means. But the, uh, the good news is that Josh has been doing some work and his team has grown to 20 from five of insiders. And he's having some success. Um, he's trying to create a big tent. And his tent is one where, hey, let's, let's figure out what's going on without, you know, more people can get in under the tent without blaming the vaccine directly. But he wants to get the industry to start testing, blood testing 100 million people to figure out what's going on. So that's a start. Um, and again, it's better. It's, it, it, you know, it's progress. It's, it, and again, you and I, you know, we look at this and we just bang our heads and go, this, this, the answer to what's going on is obvious. But again, it's a, it's a job of convincing people that we're right. And again, there's no more. We don't need any more smoking guns. We got them. We just need to sell it. Yes. So Ed, you know, what, what you said was so true that emotion distorts people's sense of thought process. They cannot think clearly. It distorts their perception. And so that's such a really such a profound statement, actually. Um, which I take to heart. So the question is, how, how do you change things? How do you move forward? Um, how do we change what's going on? How do we change the narrative? I was contacted by a, a doctor this week who's dealing with a 21-year-old who had a cardiac arrest. And it's incredulous to the family when the doctor suggests it may be vaccine-related, they weren't even prepared to listen. So, you know, the question is, you know, Emotion clouds people's thought process. So how do we move forward? How do we how do we change? Well, you know, we all got to keep doing what we're doing. I wrote the book to, as a kind of a, a way to convince family members that don't listen to us or loved ones or friends that think we're crazy because I present it in a very factual manner. It's very logical. And I leave out the who and the why so that people's worldview doesn't get assaulted. I just say it is. It's true. If it's not the vaccine, what is it? Why are we not talking about it at the very least? And it's a national security issue, in my humble opinion. I said that to Senator Ron Johnson. Um, I'll just touch upon quickly. Well, to answer your question, my tack of convincing people is this. I wrote a book. Um, I have uh, uh, big contributors to the book were Carlos and Yuri, two PhD physicists that have helped us create the humanity projects. And... Uh, that's a website where we've done all the all-cause all mortality analysis, U.S. disability analysis. It's there for the world to see. Uh, we did the we did all of Europe, the U.K., Germany. We did Australia. We did the U.S. We're going to do uh, Canada next. And the data is in. The data is in. Young people are dying at alarming, unprecedented rates. This shouldn't be happening. And so, as a result of that, we are starting. Uh, well, we we came together to solve the vaccine problem, but we're starting a hedge fund. And I find this to be very convincing to people whose eyes glaze over when I talk to them. I end my, I end my argument with, like, you can do you, but we're raising capital and billionaires are uh, knocking down our doors to figure out a way to seed our hedge fund to uh, take advantage of the reality we see. That seems to clarify some people's minds. And uh, they wake up all of a sudden because, you know, if Wall Street starts betting against um, the pharmaceutical companies and start... Uh, getting on these trends that we see, that's going to clarify a lot of things for people. That's called social proof, and it's called smart money, early money. And that I find to be convincing. But I will also say the disability data is also a disaster. 
And it's even, we're finding in our research that for every one excess death, there's four uh, disabilities, uh, four people that get disabled and can't work. This chart is pretty simple. Focus on the colored area. When we break down what happened in the uh, age group 16 to 64 since February of 21, uh, we've added 3.2 million disabled Americans. It was hovering around 29 to 30 million prior four years. And in Wall Street, we focus on signals and frequency and rate of change. That was a three standard deviation uh, 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 year over year rate of growth change. Shouldn't have happened. So 3.2 million people in about two years have been disabled. When we delve into the numbers, half of those are employed, 1.7 million. When you look at the disability rate increases, 31% rate increase for employed, uh, 8% for the general population. And when you look at uh, uh, this group, this group is a smoking gun as far as I'm concerned, not in labor force. Those are the people who left. Those are the people who got fired uh, and or quit. And their health outcomes have been the best. They've only had a 4% increase in their disability rate. So we've hit a new disability rate in the US. We're 10% higher than we were two years ago. It's 3.2 million people. These are real numbers. And if you're wondering why there's help wanted signs, this is it. And I said to Ron Johnson, Senator Ron Johnson, I'm saying it to everyone, this is a national security issue, but yet there's crickets from our health authorities and global governments, because this is occurring in uh, every country. This is not just the US. So Ed, just to ask you a question, so these people who died, you know, they died suddenly, you know, you see it every day in the newspaper, a 20-year-old died suddenly, someone 18 in their sleep died suddenly. So I presume these are otherwise healthy people. So these aren't people who traditionally vaccinated and then have the vaccine syndrome of fatigue, tiredness, lethargy, brain fog. So would I be correct in saying that these are otherwise healthy people who, who, who otherwise think they dodged the bullet who then die suddenly? Would, yeah, would that absolutely. Be- absolutely. Look, I, w- I had uh, dinner with uh, Dr. Kirk Milhone, who's in our movement on Maui, lives on Maui. And he basically said, if you get to age five without dying, you're not really expected to die until age 65. I mean, you, you, unless accidental death occurs, most people don't die until they get old. So we expect old people to die. We don't expect young, healthy people in the prime of their lives to drop dead suddenly. And, you know, I, I was watching the video opening that you guys put out from a year ago, and I actually misquoted Scott Davison. He said a 10% increase would be uh, once in a 200-year flood. 40% is off the charts. I misquoted him. Um, it's the, so it's worse than even he said, uh, than I said. It's, he, 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 he knows what's going on intuitively, but his brain can't get him to admit it. He, in fact, said on that Chamber of Commerce call a year ago, he said, um, we're going to uh, up our uh, rates in counties that have less vaccination. So he, he missed the boat in, uh, a year ago. And I, I wonder if he's changed his mind. I don't know. Yeah. You know, on that I died uh, suddenly and unexpectedly. You know, I, I'm an ICU doctor, and um, one of my interests in my career was on sudden cardiac arrest. I did a lot of work around CPR, therapeutic hypothermia. And, you know, the thing that someone who's, I guess I'm going to call myself an expert on this, like, yes, it is true that marathoners or otherwise healthy people have dropped dead while doing exercise. But those have been singular and rare events that they can headlines. Now, 
the headlines are every day around the world in every country. People are dropping dead. They're dropping dead on television, at podiums, at press conferences, at comedy shows, right? We've all seen all those videos. And the the ages of people, the alarming regularity. And, and as a physician, one of the things that I make is that it's distinctly rare for someone to be out in society participating in an activity. So it's not someone chronically ill. It's not someone with deficits or, or limitations. They're literally doing sports activities at their work and they're dropping dead. And yet we have now hundreds, if not thousands of these reports and every single newspaper report is absent the word vaccine. Absolutely. And uh, just to put some numbers on the sudden athletic deaths, uh, there was a study, the Lausanne study from 2006 that tried to figure this out. Like you said, it's happened. So the, uh, the pushback you and I get is, well, this has happened before. Yep. Yes, it has, but it's super rare. And the Lausanne study showed that sudden athletic deaths have occurred uh, uh, over a 38-year period. They, they, they found 1,101 of them. That's 29 a year globally. So again, it, 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 it happens, but it's rare, and it's not something that I remember growing up happening all the time with frequency. What happened after 2021 was the frequency went off the charts. And in my book alone, we cite hundreds and hundreds of examples in the book. And I just calculated off my book, it's a, a, a tenfold increase, but I only have a, a sampling. Someone, someone did a study recently, it was on a blog report, that, but they cited all the stories. So it looks like it's okay. Around 1,100 athletes suddenly have died. And that is, you know, just way the heck off the... Um, uh, the charts. It's like 25 standard deviation event. So this is this is something that has happened, but not with the frequency we see. And I'd like to say this: if these sudden deaths were in the un, in the unvaccinated population, this would be on the news 24 seven. Yep. No. So uh, Betsy, give me one more second because there's sure. another another topic that I wanted to ask you about. Ed, is that. I agree with you. Things are changing and there are there is evidence that I'm going to have to use the word narrative, right, that the reality is so large, right? The, these deaths and the excess mortality, and I, I don't want to use the word excess mortality anymore. I want to be clear that I should use excess non-COVID mortality because right. that's going to be part of this new narrative. So Non-COVID excess mortality is off the charts. No one is addressing it. No one's asking the questions. No one giving theories. However, it's so large that it has to be addressed. It, 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 the elephant is too large to actually keep it from the media. They've done a, a phenomenal job of suppressing, distorting, and not addressing this. And I saw some, um, maybe some articles today or yesterday, and I think maybe you were quoted, but can you talk about, I think you put out a tweet the Biden, you you have some evidence that the Biden administration realizes they have to address this epidemiologic signal of non-COVID excess mortality. The narratives are already being built. So do you want to talk about the idea that they're going to try to explain away these excess non-COVID mortalities as long COVID? And now we'll get to clown world, global warming. Or, yeah. or whatever insanity, because you, you know, Ed, that global warming started last year at the end of quarter one of 2021. It hadn't existed before. Right. So yeah. it's newly a thing. So they are going to try to explain away this catastrophe as not vaccine related. Yeah. So 
I hear lots of chatter all the time because of the seat that I sit in. I become kind of vocal on this issue. So people give me information. Um, you got to remember what happened on the Monday night football game really kickstarted this national conversation. And it was already, uh, the good news is there was a poll done by Rasmussen that showed that uh, the, the gen- despite what the media and the narrative is, people are waking up to the fact that vaccinated people are getting injured and dying. So there seems to be a large and ever-growing set of the population that thinks that this is happening. I don't remember the specific number, but it's let's say it's 30 to 40 percent. Um, so this is becoming a consciousness issue that has to be addressed. And I uh, spoke uh, about a week ago to someone uh, in the government who told me they are talking about um, what's going on. And, and, and I said, does the vaccine come up in the conversations? And he says, yes, it does. But they say we don't have enough data, whatever that means. Um, but they, 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 the, 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 the thing that's uh, piqued my interest is when he said the Biden administration uh, and the White House may declare an epidemic of sudden death. So they'll actually acknowledge that it's happening and they're going to try to blame long COVID and they're kind of testing the idea of climate change. (laughs) I I suspect, I suspect what the, and that's why I worded the the tweet the way I did. I suspect they'll, they'll settle on long COVID unless, you know, the clown world people in charge think that uh, they live in their bubble and they think, you know, that'll fly and that'll sell in Peoria, which we know it won't. Well, Ed, you know, if I, I agree with you, I think it's good. They're going to go with long code as the, as the narrative. And the reason why I know that is because I've talked to the information I get. I, I, I have a, a few different sources who are still on the front lines in the health system. You know, Paul and I are, are, are out of the health system, but they've been seeing bizarre presentations of diseases. They've been seeing cancers and cardiac complications in ever younger people that they've never seen before with no risk factors. And inside those hospitals for a year now, plus the clinicians have been attributing it to complications of long COVID or sequelae of long COVID. That is starting to change at the hospital level from what I'm hearing from my folks is that now doctors are more likely to put down related to the vaccine, vaccine injury or vaccine associated. So, so there is a little bit of change, but that example of using long COVID to blame all of this stuff on, that, that's already been happening. Exactly, but they, I think it's gonna go national next. And yeah, so, uh, you know, Ed, the problem with blaming long COVID is that from a medical point of view, it just makes no sense. I mean, how does long COVID cause sudden death? It just is inexplainable because it doesn't happen. But we know what the vaccine does to your clotting system and to your coronary arteries. So they may try that trick, but from a medical point of view, it's very difficult to explain how long COVID will cause sudden death. I mean, they're going to blame anything. If they're going to blame... Climate change, they can blame Santa Claus or anybody else, but anyone with any sense should figure out that makes no sense because we know what it's due to. And, you know, there was a really good study which the Heart Journal tried to suppress in which this clinician, um, he was monitoring cardiac risk factors using a biomarker profile to predict cardiac death. And he found in his vaccinated patients 
that the cardiac risk went from 10% to 25% after two months of vaccination. And that is only explained by alteration in your endothelial function and your coronary arteries. So they may, they're going to try this, there's no question, but any intelligent person should then wonder, okay, how's long COVID doing this? And there's just no logical explanation from a clinical point of view to connect those dots. I wholeheartedly agree with you. The, the, the problem is that in my mind, and again, this is why this is a grind. We're doing what we're doing. Uh, people are going to not think too hard about this that aren't you know, like us that are in the echo chamber. They're gonna kind of see the headline and if the vaccine hasn't hurt them, they're gonna say, oh, okay, fine. I gotta continue to get my boosters. So that I think is what they want. They want to try to cover this up. And, and what's really disgusting to me is we all know what's going on. They know what's going on. And the fact they continue to double down at this point is, a, uh, it, is murder and negligence and crimes. And that's where I am. I'm, I'm done you know, saying that it isn't. And I said so in my book. At this point, they see what we see and they continue. Yeah, I think you got to call it for what it is. They know what's doing it. We know what's doing it. The poor dead people are dead and call it like it is. This is vaccine-related cardiac events and death. And there's no other explanation. And I agree with you. We need to call it the way it is. And they're going to try all these smoke screens of blaming it on climate change. I mean, isn't that an absurdity? They're going to find any other excuse. But, you know, we just have to stick to the truth and we know what it's due to yeah Doctors, we we have a a few really good questions yeah, yeah. hold on one, okay. one more thing i'm sorry i just can't help because i know I that we're gonna lose him at the top of the hour we've got to get yeah, some yeah, yeah. oh yeah we're running out of time just real quick this is probably too big but ed you brought up i think it was in that video maybe you said it earlier you know about like the 1976 swine flu vaccine, right? When they pulled it after whatever it was, 25 deaths. Okay, yeah. so that's that's almost 50 years ago. Um, you know, even this uh, decade, right? Remember the baby formula thing? They pulled the baby formula after like four babies died. Yeah. How do you explain the death reports associated with this vaccine? Like, what is it systematically in society that suddenly we live in a society where we don't pay attention to those signals? My personal opinion is that we we literally live under corporate fascism, meaning it's corporations that really run our governments and agencies now. And so that's why we're ignoring. But like, what do you think is the main difference between the absolute ignoring of all these signals, which are screaming from everywhere, but yet we have an entire society where it's being suppressed, distorted, and not talked about, and people are dying. I think it's simple. You know, back in the 70s, I think the GDP uh, of the, that the government um, was a percent of was around 15%. After COVID, it's 43% of our GDP. So oh. government has become so big and corporations are so in bed with them that we are literally living in a time where corporate fascism is real and uh, human life is cheap yep. and that's where we are that's i mean and what's going on is a systemic problem as well as you know uh you know a humanitarian crisis we we we, we this has been the slow march to corporate fascism and here we are yep 
that's what I thought. <laughs> and that, that's been my understanding of the world over the last three years. And I didn't know this three years ago, but I've had to learn it, unfortunately. All right. Sorry, Betsy. You can. That's all right. I just want to tell Ed back. I in had the 19... to talk to Ed. <laughs> of course you did. Back in the 1970s, when I was in the media in Washington, if we had had any inkling that any corporation was taking over, putting their people on a regulatory agency, we would have had it all over the place. It would have been a it would have been a fit, a big news story. What happened? That's all of a sudden it's okay. All of a sudden it's okay to partner and to run the show. Who's running this whole system? Anyway, let me get you to some of these questions. Um, Elena Suna says, what do you make of the assessment by Sasha Ladipova and James Ragushi, uh, or, or maybe that's Raguski, and others that by going through the medical countermeasures program, the pharma companies may have a loophole. They can claim they didn't defraud the government. They can say they provided the fraud the government ordered. Does that need additional strategies to hold them accountable? You know, my, my personal opinion is once this becomes widely known, and that's our goal, there'll be no uh, court in the land that's going to uphold the contract between the government and Pfizer. That Once we turn public opinion, uh, th there will be rulings such that you violated the spirit of immunity, whatever. Something will come, and, it, and, and, and Pfizer will go down eventually. It just... Uh, there, there's no court in the land once this is widely known that's going to protect these clouds. Well, we've got a number of people, including Cheryl Huntoon, asked, how do you, Ed, see us turning this all around and getting out of it? I mean, I, Paul sort of got into this, but, you know, if you have a scenario, is your book going to do it? I mean, what, what else can do well, it? Well, it's not my book. It's everybody. I mean, this is, this, the good news is it's good news and bad news. And I've said this in, over the last year, I said, unfortunately, it's going to take bodies and disabilities to get to the point where it's obvious to everyone. And we're starting to cross that threshold. So I would suspect in the next, you know, weeks to six months, this is going to break wide open. What I'm worried about is when it does, there'll be other distractions introduced to, to, to put us uh, our attention elsewhere. I'm, I'm predicting potentially a war flare up with China and all sorts of other economic ills coming our way um, that will distract and uh, put people in fear. So I think it's going to happen soon. Uh, and maybe I'm being too optimistic and it's not going to be my book. It's going to be everybody together doing what we're doing. It's going to be just one person, one mind at a time. And my book is you know, certainly helpful to that, but I'm not going to claim that my book is going to save the world. Well, we all thought that the press conference that we had back in uh, December of 2020 was going to save it when Pierre and Paul and, and Joe were up there saying, oh, look at this. Look what ivermectin does. Oh, my gosh. Silence. I mean, there, there have been several moments along this trip that have been totally ignored. So I'm hoping I'm, I'm, I'm hoping your six months will six months to a year. Whoa, let's let's pray for that. We got more on here. Dennis uh, Kunke wants to know, what can be done to change the education for medical schools that are beholden to big pharma and other influential dictators of medical curriculum and ethics? And of course, Paul and Pierre may have no, I was on that. About to say, I would really love to hear from Ed because I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> Maybe Ed does. Well, so, so I think 
let's let's talk about the FLCCC. I I plug you guys as hopeful solutions to uh, what's coming down the pike. And I, I always make sure I, I say I'm not affiliated because I don't want people to think I'm grifting for you. But I, when people ask me, what can we do? I name your organization. So your organization is the beginning of the new way. And that's going to take time. And the current system has to be raised to the ground. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen, but it's not going to happen overnight. There's going to be a cycle of um, distrust. That's eventually, once people get uh, an inkling of this, the whole medical system is going to be rethought. And guys like you and, and Paul um, are at the forefront of a, what I think is going to be a phenomenal growth industry for years to come. That's what I, that's how I, and it's, again, it's going to take time, but the current institutions need to be raised to the ground. Okay. Uh, Jim Adela Russo says, um, your work, I'll add, along with Pierre's and Paul's and others, is so valuable and amazing. We truly need experts from many fields to bring forth the truth. Would you please elaborate a bit on the fraud aspects of the vaccine mandates and how, if ever, would anyone be able to submit a sustainable claim? Well, so the fraud, uh, the mandates were fraudulent from the get-go. It's under the color of law. We're starting to win court cases. New York just told the governor that you can't mandate, you had no authority. So that's going to happen state by state. I think the fraud's really going to be broken wide open by uh, state's attorney generals like the ones in Florida getting discovery. I believe wholeheartedly and personally that the fraud occurred at the clinical trial uh, level databases. Uh, I've spoken length uh, for many hours to Brooke Jackson, and what she told me that I thought was the smoking gun was they unblinded her 1,000 patients, which as we know is a no-no in clinical trials. And the efficacy that they sold us on was based upon eight in the vaccination cohort versus 165 in the unvaccinated. And all, all it would take is to be fraud uh, in her 1,000 to affect those numbers. So if it's 1,000 were unblinded, you could probably guess most other sites were unblinded. So if it's an unblinded study, it's fraud. I think the data is garbage, just wholesale. I think they just made up numbers. I think we'll find that out eventually through discovery. I think yeah. the fraud in the clinical trial data is massive. Yeah, and though, you know, this is not a new problem. Big Pharma have been committing fraud for 30, 40 years, blatant fraud, you know, fabricating data, manipulating data, unpublishing data, changing data. We know about this. You know, this was blown open with Tamiflu in, you know, 2014. We, we know all the Tamiflu data is completely fabricated. And yet nobody seems to care. I mean, so this, this, you know, issue of big pharma corrupting data, while obviously it, it, it underlies the problem with this Pfizer trial, is not a new issue. No. I, agree, I agree. It's not a new issue. And, and, and Bobby Kennedy pointed it out to me. But I said the problem we had back then is it never made it into the public consciousness because there were, there were one-off products and there were, it was a small enough population that it never made it you know, the signal. The signal now is this is a bridge too far. The damage that's been wrought to, the, to uh, our society is so big, they got too greedy. I believe it's, we're going to investigate all sorts of clinical trials, and it's, everything's about to change, in my humble opinion. But again, it won't happen overnight. Ed, I want to just uh, jump on what you just said because, and what Paul just said. I... 
there's no good that's going to come of this. But when I try to salvage some positive way forward, I do think that this massive fraud uh, and overreach has resulted in such a massive catastrophe. Like you said, it's not a one-off. It's not a drug that killed, you know, 10 or 20 or 30,000 people. This is globally and this is societally. And I do think that there's going to be recognition. And one of the things that I want to talk about is I'll talk about me and Paul. Like three years ago, as doctors, educators, researchers, we were highly published I always knew that there was fraud in the pharmaceutical industry, like you always had to be aware of it. But the depth and the depravity, what we've learned in the last three years has been a lifetime education. And when you talk about fraud around these vaccine trials, remember, there is a corollary. Everything they did to manipulate the data around vaccines and hide and bury the adverse effects and do whatever they did was paralleled with all of the publications around early treatment, the, the attacks on hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, that, that's been my life for three years that I've, I've had to be the warrior for, which is trying to fight the fraud and all of the propaganda against ivermectin. But like, I guess my point is what I've learned, I always thought there was corruption and they had to be watch out for it. And I, I'd, been, I'd been privy to a couple of corruptive medicines in my career. Now, Ed, I'm lost. Like, I don't even know how to look at medical literature anymore. I don't know how to look at the high impact journals. Like, I just cannot trust anything. What I've learned is that the capacity for fraud and manipulation of data to serve their interest is so large, their control over the journals and the agencies are so massive that I I almost feel I don't recognize science anymore. No, I do agree. I agree with Ed that I think this has become such a big problem and so many people are going to be affected. It's, you know, everybody's going to know somebody personally that has been affected. So it's going to, I think the scale of it is what's going to cause things to change. Yep. Because it, it's it's such a level that somebody knows somebody who's been injured or someone who knows somebody who's died, you know, close to them. And I think it's going to be such a such a mess. You know, it's not just two or three people that are involved. It's going to be such a massive number of people that are involved that they just can't ignore it. And I think Ed's right. That's what's going to cause call lead to this change. And require before I go, um, I just want to say this to what uh, Dr. Corey said. Um, yeah, I talked about clinical trial data fraud. The fraud you saw in the suppression of early treatment was mafia, so mafia, mafia tactics. The pharmaceutical industry has been employing shadowy uh, agents to suppress doctors that would go on trial to for vaccine injuries. And I, I found this out that they had a system in place already to just malign anybody that came against them. And they've turned it on to a national global scale. So it's revealed their dirty uh, secretive tactics. They are a mafia. That's what they are. Yep. Agreed. We have time for a couple more. We're not quite at the top of the hour. We'd like, we've got. Hey, when are you going to give us the hard stop now? <laughs> uh, I, let me check my schedule. One second. All right. Because I, I could I could talk to you for another hour. Oh, easily. But I, I want to at least get a couple more of these in because they're good. I have to go in like two minutes because uh, they're calling me at three. 
All right, okay. Betsy, go get get another right. question. Right. In. Back to the insurers. Are the Mark Givens wants to know? Are the insurers and actuaries actually catching up to your data, Ed? Are policy exclusions creeping in? Are employers beginning to act towards risk management? If not, what will it take to trigger this type of action? No, so the policy. They're raising prices for sure. They're not doing exclusions because that would be an admission, and they don't have the data to do that yet. Um, what are what are what are corporations doing? I think they're asleep at the switch, and I think Wall Street is starting starting to wake up. They're asleep at the switch. They've vaccinated most of their employees, so this is yet to come. It's coming soon, I think. Okay, and the last the last question. You're going to love this one. Um, from Anne says, Ed, in light of what you're seeing, what else should ordinary people do with their finances? Should, should they keep more cash on hand if everything's going to hell? What What else? Yeah, I, I've been saying since January of last year, and I've been proven right, uh, having cash in your portfolio is not a bad idea. The way Wall Street really works is you want to buy when the news is horrible and bad. That's coming. That's when you when the mainstream media starts telling you the world is ending. That's when you buy. We're not even close to that yet. So cash uh, on the sidelines is what we call dry powder. And that's what I would recommend. Nice. Dry powder. Well, um, I guess we I have to run. let you go. <laughs> you Take care, everybody. Bye. Ed, thanks for, thanks for joining us, man. Really no worries. Good. Thanks for having me on. I'll come on again. Great. Absolutely. Bye. Uh, doctors, do you want to take a couple medical questions or do you want to wrap it up for this evening and leave it on the on this topic? There are um, a couple we have from Nora who says to Nora Fitzgerald, two women in my circle have contracted bile duct cancer. Isn't that supposed to be rare? Truly rare. Are there more bile duct cancer cases now post-vaccine? So, yes, it's true that uh, bile duct cancer is a rare cancer. Um, there is a wealth of, I would say, anecdotal data with people I've talked to, many cases that have been presented to me. Um, and then there's the ethical skeptic who did a very uh, sophisticated analysis of cancer data. Th there is an explosion of cancers, right? We also have the mechanisms for why that would be, right? The effects of the vaccine on the suppression of immune uh, cells that are normally employed to control cancers. Those are being removed. So it's it's somewhat unsurprising. It's not only new cancers in patients without risk factors, but a lot of what I've been deluged with is patients who've been in remission from treated cancers, which now have come back in in in, in severity and ferocity. Um, what was the question again, Betsy? I mean, well, was, it was, that was it. The question was about. Bile duct cancer. Yeah, bile yeah. duct cancer. So we see, yeah, we see unusual tumors. We see tumors in young people. We see very aggressive tumors. So just for our audience to know, in two or three weeks' time, we're actually going to have an integrative oncologist who's been seeing oncologists. Maybe we're still working on this. Who's going to discuss this whole issue because. Um, it's obviously is a is is a very it's a problematic issue because um, the, these 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 are turbo cancers. They seem to to become very aggressive. But you know we're going to have an oncologist or oncologists 
you know, join us so um, we can talk about this issue. Yeah, and what, what Paul just said, you know, there's a widespread condemnation around anytime you hear some, oh, that's just anecdotal evidence, right? So everyone's trying to dismiss these realities that we're seeing, unless you put it together in some fancy trial in some big journal, it's all anecdotal. But, you know, Paul mentioned turbo cancer. I cannot tell you, I've never heard of turbo cancer until the last year. And I cannot tell you how many people that I interact with, again, I have, I call them my sources that are still living, you know, working in big medical systems, but they are describing things that I've never heard. And by the way, I'm a pulmonologist who's a lung, uh, lung expert. My practice when I was in Manhattan for 10 years largely centered around lung cancer. I did a lot of diagnostics, therapeutics. I took care of a lot of lung cancer patients. So I, I have a deep experience in oncology. I'd never heard of tober cancers. Now I'm having, I'm deluged with anecdotes of people who are diagnosed stage one and within weeks are stage four. And I have people who are diagnosed with cancer and in hospice within weeks to months. Cancer is a killer for sure. Many people have died of cancer. But cancer is not, does not have that pattern or that dynamic. It, it, it's it's one of the most alarming things, and yet there's zero talk about it. But what Paul said is true. I mean, the, the, I don't know the origin of the term turbo cancer, but I can guarantee you it was never used prior to 2020. Turbo cancer is a real phenomenon. It's a thing, and it's terrifying. Hey, I'm back. They canceled. Okay. Apparently, the the interviewer got sick. Maybe she got vaccinated. I'm not sure. Yeah, there you go. We're, we're glad to have you back. I have one more medical question here um, for, for for the docs, and maybe you know something about this too. You never know. You seem to have a lot of knowledge, Ed. Okay, this is from Elizabeth Crispin, who says, "If we are one year out from the last vaccine we took." Do you think we're safe from sudden death? I'll even add, or turbo what cancer, or whatever. Yeah, so maybe, or just the risk linger. Maybe I'll answer that because it is a good question. So what we used to say is that if you've been vaccinated, because if you look at the the the, the time course of a vaccine injury, most of the cases are in the first week or two weeks. So what we used to say is if you, you know, two or three weeks out and you don't have brain fog or fatigue or tiredness or neuropathy, you've dodged the bullet. But now we know that's not true. So it seems that the peak of sudden death is between about four to six months after the vaccine. And this is related to the clotting and related to inflammation of the large blood vessels. So so people who are in that window that window of four to six months after the vaccine are at an increased risk of dying. And so we actually have a, on our protocol, we've adapted our protocol to make some suggestions to deal with this. But as this person is asking, once you're eight or nine months out, you probably have dodged the bullet. You know, there's no guarantee of anything in medicine or in life. You can never say never and never say ever. But I think that statistically, the likelihood of something bad happening, um, you know, nine, 10 months after uh, is a lot less. Would you agree with that, Ed? You know, looking at your data? So the, the excess mortality 
And so we all know that booster uptake has come way down. A lot of mandates are being dropped. But in the group life policyholders, as of Q2 of 2022, excess mortality millennials, and I use millennials because they're the healthiest, 23%, which is still a disaster. Um, and that, that it was 23% in Q1. Q3, uh, I'm being told, is going to come in at 23% as well. So it, it's holding. What we don't want to see is a reacceleration. Um, and I don't have the data on Q4, but uh, that let's stay tuned. The disability data, the good news is, is that the, the uh, second derivative has changed. So the year-over-year -year rate of change is slowing, but it's still up and to the right albeit at a lower rate, but until I want to see trend line, I want to see excess mortality trend back towards normal. I want to see disability, uh, uh, the, the, the pattern we're seeing, the trend bro broken, and we haven't seen that yet. So but I'm we, concerned there may be a medium to long-term issue. Ed, question. In your analyses, have you used, have you tried to correlate these events with vaccine uptake, because my sense is right now, I mean, despite everything we've talked about tonight, the reality on the ground is jabs for toddlers had minimal uptake. The uptake on the boosters are dropping uh, excessively. So have you tried to do correlations with how many vaccines are actually being delivered and changes in some of these events that we're talking about? Yeah, that's on our website at Finance Technologies, uh, P A H I N I N A N C E Technologies. Hey, Tom, can you show that slide of, of uh, Ed's website and his group? Because I, I, I just discovered it yesterday, and I was looking. But by, by the way, the slides you came with today, Ed, those are absolutely damning. But when I dug deep into your analyses and some of those charts, I mean, I could pick 10 graphical analyses of data that you've compiled that are as striking or as even more alarming than what you presented tonight. Correct. Correct. And what we've, what, uh, in the disability section, in one of the uh, part four, three, I'm not sure, we do a correlation between vaccine uptake and disabilities. The R square is 0.9. So there you oh go. Oh my gosh. And yeah. by the way, Ed, our followers don't know what an R squared of 0.9 means, but I will try to explain it. An R squared is a a correlation coefficient, it's when you look at two variables and you see how tightly um, in parallel they are. When one changes, does the other change? A 0.9, Ed, is almost unheard of. <laughs> I mean, a 0.9 R squared? Yeah, it's on our website. And look, the R, we write because we know people, you know, correlation is not causation. Of course but, it isn't. But, but given... Um, um, the fact that there were not this uh, these kind of disabilities prior to 2020, uh, and the, and the and the the tight fit with the vaccine uptake, the question has to be asked if it's the question needs to be asked if it's not the vaccines, what is it? So yep. we have to start with yeah. is it the vaccines? If it's not Houston, we have a problem. So the drug makers need to prove to me and, and our investors uh, that they're not at fault first before we even decide to even you know, change our investing scheme, which they're not going to do because they are at fault and it's them. So basically, Ed, you're inviting the data analysts, researchers, clinicians, policymakers of the world to try to identify a variable with a tighter correlation to these events than Correct. the vaccine uptake. Mm -hmm. And yes. I wish them luck 
Maybe it's the temperature degree change of the core of the Earth. Maybe I, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I know well, I'm just being silly, but like literally an R squared of 0.9. Try to find any other variable that matches that. Yeah, and I will also say this. I uh, tongue in cheek said if it's not the vaccine, maybe it's a new virus that only affects the most able-bodied and employed amongst every country in the world. Maybe that's, we need to investigate that, a new hey, type of virus. That hey, and so I have an uh, interesting question. So the uptake of vaccine in Africa generally is about 15 to 20%. So th this does create some kind of a natural experiment that you can compare the risk of maybe acute sudden death or sudden death syndromes in highly vaccinated versus un, you know, less vaccinated populations. Has anyone looked at that data? So we've been, uh, we first worked on the Western nations because that was where the problem is. There's a, there's in a lot of these countries, you know, their records collections aren't the best. We're probably gonna look at South Africa um, and do an analysis on South Africa. So even though South Africa is more modernized than most countries in Africa, I think their vaccine uptake was a lot less. So we might get some um, some interesting uh, details from there as well. Well, yeah, Ed, so I've already seen some being, of that. Hey, Ed, being a South African, actually, I would agree with you. So, you know, I, I, we know that the vaccine uptake in South Africa is not great, but they have a reasonable medical system. And so I think, you know, the... You know, patients who present with sudden death will present to the hospital in one way or another. So, I think it's a good it's a it's a good place to start. And well, yeah. But wait, Paul, Ed, I've already seen that data. I just saw that today. I saw a comparison of excess mortality in South Africa, which you're you're right. It had very low relatively compared to Western advanced health economies. Vaccine uptake. They are not seeing these insane rises in excess mortality, excess non-COVID or COVID mortality in, in South Africa. Well, we're, we're, we'll, we'll probably get on that soon, but we, we, there's only so much time in the day. We're doing, we're doing what we can. <laughs> there's a question, by the way, one of our people, Nancy Doctor, wants to know, is the cause of death data that you're looking at for, for 2021 obtainable from the insurance industry? And if not, is it obtainable from the CDC? Reliable yeah, so, cause of death. So the cause of death. So people want us to go into that. And we um, figured from the get-go that that data might be compromised and that they might change the codes. So we're just counting ones and zeros. People can't attack either you're dead or you're not dead. Or, or there's either excess deaths or no excess deaths. Josh Sterling uh, has found, he has, we don't have definitive proof, but <clears throat> we think that they're changing the codes. And they're doing what, what, I, what I call reclassification fraud, which I saw on Wall Street. Enron did that. They reclassified expenses as capital expenses. When you do that, it doesn't affect the cash flow statement. So this would be typical kind of thing. Uh, I don't think we can get that kind of granularity, nor would I trust the data, to be honest. Okay, and there's one final question that we have uh, that comes from someone. We talked about other doctors here. What about the morticians? 
Um, have you talked to the morticians about what they are seeing? Is this a part of your doing? I know our doctors have at our medical conference. We have one that we're probably going to be talking to it a great a great deal more on this program. But have you factored in their information? Uh, I've not talked to morticians. Um, I'm focused on the metadata, and I did look at funeral home company results, the ones that are public in the U.S. About eighty percent of the funeral home industry is still private, but 20% of it is uh, public. <clears throat> and there's this company, Service Corporation International, which um, reports uh, every quarter, and they have been having what we call upside surprises. And even they were alarmed by their upside surprises. They uh, couldn't understand why uh, they, the, the death rates weren't normalizing. And they now have said, this is the kind of death rate we're going to see going forward, and it's not COVID. So they've 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 not blamed the vaccine, but they say we're seeing non-COVID deaths. So that's it. The, the numbers are the numbers. Uh, they're they've turned into growth stocks. They shouldn't be growth stocks because it's, death rates are pretty steady. And all that all they were doing in their stock scheme was, um, you know, going up to private owners of hospital of uh, funeral home companies and buying them. Their growth was through mostly acquisition not unit growth. So this is this is a disaster. They're seeing same store sales, which is a measure of bodies, increase year over year when they should be decreasing if we're in a normal... Um, normal uh, Ed, you're yeah. blowing my mind. You're literally yeah. talking yeah. about yeah. a death industry that is on a growth trajectory, it's not transition. Correct. Correct. I mean, we don't have to talk about anything else. It pretty much. And, and and here's the other thing. I'm just going to bring this up. But I was really intrigued by reports of um, you probably saw this. There were like these that I, I never validated. I don't have the ability to do it. But these massive increases in orders for smaller coffins. Did you look into that or do you, are you aware about that? Like the, the coffin buy orders when increased. When, can you say anything so, about that? I, so I, did, I, I saw those reports. I couldn't verify them, and I'm very careful not to get into one of these false information traps. So that's I, why I'm asking you. That's why I'm yeah. asking. I, I didn't want to say that that's the truth, but I was intrigued by that. that yeah. That. Well, look. Intuitively, it makes sense to me. I haven't proven it. What I do know there's a there's a casket manufacturer. I forget Merrick Industries. One of their lines of business is caskets, and business is booming. Mm -hmm. So caskets in general are booming. Um, but what also what also is going on is um, the co there's inflation obviously and um, there's a lot more uh, cremations going on as well. Growth industries, Ed. Growth, like I said, the way that these public companies grew was through acquisitions, and 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 the way they made money was you buy the sole proprietor funeral home, and you and because you have big buying power, all the materials and stuff. You know, it, 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 it's 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 a roll up. It's a classic roll up strategy where your your buying power uh, is able to um, present the growth in earnings, not so much top line. Um, but now, same store again, same store unit sales are up, and that usually only happens in a fast growing like restaurant that's expanding across the nation, like uh, you know, uh, uh, Taco Bell in the old days, or what's the new one? Uh, I forget Chipotle. Chipotle you know, yeah, yeah. They, they talk about same same store sales, which is more of a 
you know, that we shouldn't be talking about same store sales growth in a funeral home company. Just shouldn't be. Yep. Well, the only thing I can hear them countering with that is they're going to say, oh, you're hitting the baby boomers. These are the post-war baby boomers now coming of the age when they're getting old and they're dying. That will be the counter to that. Well, that's correct. But the funeral home companies already factored that into their growth rates. So that that is above and beyond. I knew you. I knew you had the numbers. I knew you. Okay. Hey, Ed, thanks for okay. This has been fascinating. Thank fascinating. you. Fascinating. Just incredible. Thank you so much, doctors. And let's bring our nurses on who've been answering questions all around the behind the scenes uh, from all of you. We've got, where's Christina? And uh, we've got Pamela and Samantha. And where? Uh, let's spot them. Stephanie. Scott, Scott's back there too. Thank you so much for all of that you have been doing. Did you get a lot of questions as well? We did get some questions, but they're mostly for Ed tonight, but we answered 116 <laughs> questions out of out of about 170. Hey, hey well, Ed is still here. Do you want to pose one to him that you couldn't answer that you Wait, No, I was going to I was going to propose something else. Christina, why don't we have Ed manning the question line next week? <laughs> there you yeah, go. Great <laughs> idea. I love that. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. There perfect. was there were some investment questions, but I didn't know if those were appropriate for our <laughs> <laughs> We gave him one. He said, cash is not bad right now. There's not a bad thing to be in. If you've been watching Ed long enough, you, you've probably already taken that advice and he's already given out. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, thank you all. You're, you're doing a wonderful job. I'm going to have to wrap this up. We do have some important announcements, folks, of things that you want to pay attention to because we've got some good things coming up. Uh, our conference, we have coming up, save the date. Uh, April 28th and 29th, the FLCCC's next, our second medical conference. You can submit your email at flccc.net forward slash conference to receive updates on details as they emerge about who the speakers are going to be, all of the topics that are going to be discussed, et cetera, and so forth. But yes, it's happening and we want to see you there. Uh, next. A chance to be heard, and this is important, and it's something that you need to do now. The FDA's Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee has a meeting scheduled for January 26th to discuss the future of COVID-19 vaccines. Well, hello. Children's Health Defense is calling for people to submit public comment before January 25th. Let them know your thoughts. Let them know your experiences. CHD, Children's Health Defense, has some ideas for topics that you can cover. So take a look at this slide and you can get more. Uh, there is a way to contact them, but you've got a deadline on this before January 25th. You need to tell your story about the vaccines and what you think of the vaccines. Get it on the public record. Now then, Here's a thought, another thought. We have something really quite wonderful that we're doing. We've launched a new column by humor writer Jenna McCarthy that you're going to want to check out, either on our Substack or our website. It's called Here's a Thought. 
and it's a light, easy, and approachable read. Jenna's latest explains how she deals with conversations with the FFD, which uh, she describes as the folks who feel differently. You probably know a few of them. Maybe they're your relatives. Maybe they're some of your coworkers. But it's a it's a wonderful article that she has written. So check it out. It's on our website. Now then, something else you're going to love. Kid care is coming and soon. Stay tuned. Our beloved Dr. Liz Mumper has been hard at work on a parent's guide for dealing with COVID and kids. We will let you know when it's ready as soon as it's ready. Next, long story short, you know, time really does fly when you're having fun. Can you believe that this week marks 40 episodes of Long Story Short with Dr. Bean? Take some time to pour through the archive. There is so much good stuff in there. FLCCC.net forward slash Dr. Bean. You can learn a great deal. And finally, slide our last slide for the evening is of course a thank you for your donations i want to thank all of you who have supported this tiny nonprofit organization so that we can continue to educate medical professionals around the world and others who just need help in learning how best to stay healthy and from people who aren't trying to sell you anything anyway you are the ones who make us strong and you help others through us. So thank you. Thank you. We're grateful for anything you can continue to contribute. Stay well. And in the video we're signing off with tonight is another good reason why we do what we do. Thank you. We'll see you next week.